Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. As Coronation Street nears its big birthday, we continue our celebrations of all things Weatherfield with an interview with one of the show's biggest stars of the late 70s and early 80s, giving us a real insight into some of the most legendary characters and actors during what might be considered by some Corrie's golden age is Christopher Quinton, who played Brian, Ivy Tilsley's molly-coddled son. Chris added some sex appeal to the show back then, becoming Corrie's first real hunk, and of course, Gail's first husband. He sat down for a trip down memory lane with Ashley. It's a good one, this one. Chris, it's lovely to chat to you. Um, I grew up like uh, just about everybody in this country, you know, watching uh, Coronation Street. You were in it in the 1970s. I was, at the time, a little boy uh, growing up. You know, that was my formative time. I'm sure you watched it in the um, in the 60s and early 70s and whatever. But it's funny, isn't it? It becomes part of your life. I can't think of any time in my life when Coronation Street hasn't been part of my life in some way, even if I've not been watching it on a regular basis. It, it's part of the discourse. You talk about it. It's there, isn't it? You know, you arrived in the street in the late 1970s. I'd have been about six or seven at the time. And I think I do remember quite vividly you arriving in, if I remember, it was some kind of party, wasn't it, um, that you arrived at? Is that right? Yes, I did, yes. It was, uh, um, yeah, and I did the famous backflip in the party. It was Gail's, uh, or some, it was some party, and I, my first... Uh, uh, scene was in the Rovers, um, and then it was saying, "Yeah, let's go back to this party," and that was so. My first scene was in the Rovers, and the next scene was in the party. And uh, and and you know, I used to be a gymnast, and uh, I was also uh, a crazy disco dancer. You know, in my teens, um, and we went to the party, and I I managed to do a bit of disco dancing, and I managed to get a backflip in. Um, right on Coronation Street and that kind of like you know um started me off as the kind of you know the the uh the fitness hunk of Corrie which was it never happened in those days you know I was the first one did that impress Gail at the time was it was it Gail was impressed by that was she well obviously she was because she fell in love with me straight away <laughs> you see I was I was I believe um, you know, anyone who, who gets into Coronation Street now, it really is like a gift from God. It really is. But it was so much more in the 70s and early 80s because, as you know, we only had the three or four channels. And it was the number one um, program in the country, you know, 17 million, 18 million, 19 million people. And, you, and you're right, it was a complete institution. And I was, you know, part of, of the fan club or, or, or the way of life of, of, of being a fan of Coronation Street because everyone watched it. Everyone watched it. So when I got a part in Coronation Street, it was like, what? 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 <laughs> I'm in Coronation Street and I've got a year contract and I'm 21 years old. Are you sure about this? And so it was a massive, massive thing, you know, then. It's not, it's not as big now because there were so many other TV programs and, um, you know, and the, there were so many channels now. So 
it's still a fantastic achievement for anybody to get into a soap. But in the 70s, it was just phenomenal. You know, so suddenly there's this, you know, crazy, you know, uh, starstruck 21-year-old, you know, joining Coronation Street. And it, it was a, 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 an amazing, amazing feeling. And, you know, and, you know, I have great sort of stories of, of uh, my first days of, of being in Coronation Street, which was, uh, you know, I still to this day tell people about them. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'd just love to hear those stories. Um, but let's just take you back a little bit because before Coronation Street, you mentioned you'd done, you know, you'd, you'd um, been a sort of a, an athlete or gymnast or whatever, but you'd, you'd done dancing as well, hadn't you? You'd been a dancer or something and started yeah. things on stage, is that right? Yes, yeah. I, I started very early age doing, um, you know, physical um, exercise. So my first... My first th thing I got into was judo at nine. Um, then I started playing football for the school. Then I started karate. Uh, and then at 13, I started gymnastics, um, and, uh, uh, which I carried on all the way till I was 18 in my karate, my uh, football, and gymnastics and stuff. But I was also crazy, crazy, loved disco dancing. And I remember always being... In you know the, uh, the the I started going to the youth club, and then I started going to under fourteen discos at, at clubs in Middlesbrough where I where where I lived. That you know then I went to under sixteen and and uh, clubs. I was forever disco dancing. I don't know why I loved it so much. I'd go to the school uh, the school discos. Like say if it was raining, um, the uh, headmaster would let us have a. Uh, a disco at lunchtime and as kids you know uh, kids it would always get out of control and he would have to come in and stop the disco because the kids are running around they're all screaming shouting and stuff and he, he came in and he, and he stopped the uh, uh the disco and he said right everyone sit down so we all sit down and it was called mr bulmer and I can still see him now. And he had this twitch that when he spoke, he kind of like twitched his head and flicked his hair, you know. And uh, um, and, and he said, he said, okay, right, I'm stopping uh, this disco because you're all completely out of control. And everyone's going, oh, no, no, no. Well, it's just the girls going, no, 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 no. And uh, he said, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. He said, if you... Uh, if, if you show me now that you can behave and, you know, come in and dance around, but don't run around and don't do anything stupid, then I'll allow it to go on. So I want all the girls to stand up who want this lunchtime disco to go ahead if it's raining. So anyway, all the girls stood up um, and said, okay, go sit down. Now I want all the boys to stand up. And I was the only one that stood up. <laughs> so that was my, my kind of, you know, love of, of, of the disco world. And, uh, uh, and, and, and how I did it, when I left school, I started working in the shipyard, but I still carried on doing all my disco dancing stuff up until I was, you know, 18 still. You know, I was in all the clubs every night of the, of the week. Um, um, and then I joined um, the Amateur Dramatic Society, um, which uh, started to get me in the mindset of, being in show business and I did three also you know shows with them and and that made me think start thinking about London and about being an actor being a dancer and stuff and 
uh, I, I came across by chance the, um, a theatrical newspaper called The Stage, and I looked in there and there was uh, an, an audition for, for dancers in the show. And, and why I phoned up from Middlesbrough, which was 250 miles away, and spoke to this guy on the phone and said, look, I'd like to audition. And, you know, and he said, OK, well, you know, come to St. John's Wood in London on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock and you can you can audition. And uh, I was working in the shipyard. So I said to a mate of mine, I'm, I'm driving to London through the night. Will you come with me? So he said, yeah, OK. So we got in my Hillman Hunter. I had a Hillman Hunter at the time and we drove. I was too scared to go on the M1. So we drove down the A1 all the way down from Middlesbrough to London, which was 250 miles. And I'm telling you, it took me 14 hours. We broke down 10 times. And I remember pulling into London, like going down Shaftesbury Avenue, uh, or down Gower Street was the first one. Like, whoa, God, this is London. Anyway, I got to, I got to the audition very quickly, um, 10 o'clock or something. And... I used to do disco dancing and I did some dancing with the uh, amateur dramatics and I could do a time step, but it was out of time. <laughs> I, I wasn't really trained, right? But I could disco dance. And I turned up with this guy and I had my, my gymnastic gear on and, and you know, he, he did some routines and he said, well, you can't really dance, can you? <laughs> I said, no, no, I, I can't. He said, well, can you do anything else? I said, well, yeah, I'm a gymnast. He went, what's that mean you can do tumbles? I said, yeah. He said, what, you're an acrobat? I says, yeah, I can double somersault and flip. He said, well, well show me, show me. And there was this big pile of mats in this, in this Scout Hub church where we were doing the auditions. And I laid them out, and I did about 10 backflips and a, a, a somersault. He fell on the floor and fainted and said, I've been looking for someone like you for years. I put on the can-cans, um, uh, famous can-cans in the London theatre restaurants, and I, I need you to start next month. And, it, and that's how I basically started. And I started off in the West End. Uh, I did a show uh, opposite the Talk of the Town, which is now the Hippodrome. And then I did six months with Scylla Black um, at the Victoria Palace and Jimmy Tarbuck. And then I joined the uh, second generation and did a few TV shows, uh, High Summer with uh, Lena Zavaroni, Leslie Crowther in those days. Um, and then um, I managed to get an acting agent who came to see me in, in the show I was doing at the uh, Victoria Palace with Scylla Black. And I was only dancing in that. And he came to see the show and he said, you've got charisma. I like you. Um, I'll take you on as an actor. And then um, <laughs> the first audition he got me was Coronation Street, and I got the part. <laughs> really? It was the very first one he got you? Green. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that then. I mean, obviously you knew what Coronation Street was, but what was an audition for Coronation Street like? Luckily, uh, the producer was a real lovely, lovely man and loved a drink. And also uh, Bill Podmore, lovely, lovely, what a man. Oh, my God. He he uh, he was a, 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 a an experienced producer of Granada. He he. Do you remember the Dustbin Men? The TV said, "Mom, it's a Dustbin Man." Well, he 
he produced that, so he's really had a good record anyway. So he, they, they were... He did sort of every other programme on Granada for a long time, didn't he? You'd see things like Brass were made by him and all sorts of things, weren't they? That's exactly Bill Podmore. And they were bringing in this new family and they wanted to, to bring in like a young lad who was going to be like, you know, the new heartthrob. And uh, I'd luckily done a, uh, um, a, a TV commercial, which um, this was another agent. You know, when you start off in the business all those years ago, you had about 10 agents. You know, <laughs> you didn't just have one agent. You had about 10 agents, you know, and I had an agent for this, an agent for commercials, an agent for theatre, an agent for, you know. Anyway, this particular agent got me a, a commercial for Preston's of Bolton, which was a, um, a, a, a jeweler's. And I played this uh, young boy who was uh, going to ask his girlfriend to, you know, to marry him. And he goes to buy this ring. He takes her to, to, to see this ring at uh, the Preston's of Bolton. And it's me going to buy this ring and my face smiling and, and all this stuff. And I did this commercial and it went on and the casting director had seen this commercial. So they'd already seen me and thought, oh, oh I like the look of him. So uh, when I went into the audition, it was, as, it, it was as if from their part, they already knew me. So they, I walked in and they were laughing with me and joking. So I wasn't nervous at all. I just went in and was, was myself. I didn't even think about anything because they were so lovely and friendly. And, uh, and I just went in and, and was myself. They didn't even ask me to read anything or say, will you, will you say, can you act or anything like that? I, I was so lucky because if, if, if they'd have asked me to, to, to read, I probably wouldn't have got it. You know? um, so I just went in and was, and was myself. And, uh, you know, they fell in love with me just because I went in and was joking with them. And um, it was probably one of the easiest auditions I'd ever done because um, some, for some reason before that, I, I would always be nervous going into auditions and stuff. And then, and even after that, you know, I'd, I'd go to auditions and I was nervous. But that particular day, it just felt like I was just meeting a couple of mates and we were, and that was my lucky day. It was, that was the, the you know, for me, um, everything just, you know, fell into place and they fell in love with me and, and offered me a year contract straight away. It was in the stars, wasn't it really? It was obviously meant to be in a way. Well, well, so, well, well talking about that, I, I just had a, a tarot card reading the other day, which was an amazing reading. And I'd not had one done since 1977. Um, and I had it done in, in, in a, a club called the Valbonne in London, which was a famous club years ago. And this Louis Brown was a famous uh, um, uh, club owner. And uh, I remember going and had my tarot cards read. And this, this, the tarot cards, they said in my cards, you are going to be famous. You are going to go on a TV show and you're going to be famous. Two weeks later, I was in Coronation Street. So it was in the stars. There you go. There you go. There you go. So arriving on Coronation Street as a 21-year-old, is that right? You're 21 at the time. Yeah. Late 1978, because yeah. your first appearance was in... A December episode but in fact it was New Year I think it must have been a New Year celebration that the party was or something 
that you were doing the, da- the dancing at where you met where Brian met Gail. So you you're introduced around sort of Christmas time ish as this new star, new hunk. But and you were part of um, as you say a new family. But of course, Lynn Perry, who played Ivy, had been in Coronation Street on and off in the 1970s. So she was known as a character, wasn't she, already by that point? She was. So, but they brought you, you and Dad, Bert, were new, new at that particular point, were they? And we came in both at the same time, uh, both at the same day, uh, and we had our photo shoot uh, on our first day of entering Coronation Street, and we made all the front page of all the newspapers. That was like, what? I'm on the front page of all the newspapers. Are you sure? <laughs> so did you, when you got the part, how much did they tell you about the, the character you were going to play and the family that you were entering into? Quite simply, we're a new family coming in, uh, they loved Ivy Tilsley and wanted to build a family around her. Um, they wanted um, Bert to be the henpecked dad, uh, henpecked husband, um, and the loving dad. And they wanted me to be, you know, the, the young heartthrob where um, uh, Gail, who Gail falls in love with, and then the relationship starts. So. So they told us straight away that, you know, you know, you're, you're now, you know, the new biggest family in Coronation Street. And, and you know, and, and that's kind of how it started. And, you know, I got a year's contract straight away. And I remember my agent telling me, phoning me up. And uh, I, I think the most I, would, I, would, I, would, I would, was earning at that particular time was probably £100 a week in these West End shows or um, TV shows or something like that. And, and he said to me, okay, your contract is £13,000. And all those years ago, it was like, it was probably now like £100,000 now. He might as well be, uh, you know, £200,000, I think, today. That's how, you know, that's how kind of much it was at the time. What, £13,000? He said, then you'll get extras and all that. And I think in my first year, I think I earned like £20,000 in my first year. And... It was like, to me, that would be worth like £250,000 now, maybe. That's how much it was at the time, because that was a, the most I'd got was like £5,000 a year. And so it was, it, was, it was just completely cloud nine um, life changing. story. Life-changing. Life life it was, yeah. It yeah. was, yeah. Exactly. Now, of course, um, this was in the north. It was in Manchester. So obviously, you, you're a northern lad. Uh, from Middlesbrough, there's something different, isn't there, about working in, you know, Manchester or Leeds or whether whatever to to working in, in London. And the, the cast of Coronation Street obviously had been around a long time because at that point you'd still got people like, uh, you know, I think Albert Tatlock was still in it, and I think uh, um, Ina Sharples was probably still in it, and a few others, um, you know, Elsie Tanner and people like that. But they they were big stars. But at the same time, there was something. It was glamorous at Granada, but they were also a down-to-earth lot at the same time, weren't they? Well, you know, you've just mentioned those names, you know, Stan Ogden. Um, and it was a privilege. To me, that was Coronation Street. And I was going into this, like, you know, show with these, you know, legends of, you know, of, of television. And, 
you know, you know, however much I'd love to still be in the show now, I, I would have a much, you know, that uh, I'd love to, you know, be a part of Coronation Street, which I could never be. I'm so pleased that I was in it then with um, Ian Sharples, with um, uh, Albert Tatlock and, you know, Bette Lynch and stuff. So I felt that I was in it when it was proper, proper Coronation Street. And I have these like, oh, memories that I still have now, like my first day of, um, of filming, um, I, I, I think I, I went over to Middlesbrough to see my family, you know, um, because we're all so excited about it. And so I packed my bags from London and I went up to Middlesbrough and I, you know, I saw my family for a few days and I said, right, I'm going over Monday morning I'm, or Monday yeah, morning. I'm driving over from Middlesbrough over the, 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 the Pennines over to uh, Manchester to um, go to, you know, Granada to start my Coronation Street. And I, I remember coming over the, the, coming the way and I got completely lost. I, I didn't have a clue where I was going and I, God, where are we going? And I ended up somewhere and I, I thought I'm going into a petrol station to, to ask where's Coronation Street because I'm in it now. <laughs> you know? And I pulled in and guess who was putting petrol in a car? Bet Lynch, Julie Goodyear. And it was like, well, do I jump out now and say who I am and say, you know, can I follow you? Or, you know, or do I just follow her? But I was so kind of excited and so like panicking, I'll follow her. Anyway, I didn't get a chance to, to introduce myself, so I followed her. And she thought there was this lunatic chasing her. <laughs> and, I changed, and I really had to get right up the backside and I could see she was trying to get away from me. <laughs> and, and she drove like, all the way like then, and, and then they, they had their own private parking, but they didn't know me, so she went into the private uh, the private car park and it was about a 40 minute journey so it wasn't five minutes and i chased her all the way and <laughs> and i she pulled into the, to the car park and the barrier went down i found another car park and then uh, i walked into rehearsals and she went you you were following me i thought i was being like you know chased by a, a crazed fan and that was my first uh, introduction with, with Julie, and we became best of pals after that. We became best of pals. Um, and that story sticks in my mind, uh, you know, that'll stick in my mind forever. And it's a true story. <laughs> Fabulous. So did you, and obviously you've not done a massive amount of acting, as you say, this was your first sort of audition. audition. But had you come across anybody in Coronation Street? Did you know Lynn Perry from another area or... The guy who played, you know, your dad, or did you know anybody at all? I didn't know anybody whatsoever from up there. So I went up there because I lived in London um, and had no reason to go to, to Manchester. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I didn't know them at all. I just came in completely fresh. And so my first day, you know, um, in, those, in, in those days, so my first day I come in, and, you know, you've got Ina Sharples, you know, and uh, she she would never, we'd have a green room and she would never sit in the green room with all the other actors. You know, she'd always sit in the rehearsal room and, uh, you know, 
and I, you know, remember kind of the first week of rehearsal with, with her was uh, at the end of you know the, the week. She called me over and said, uh, "You've been around quite a quite a lot, haven't you? Are you are, are you are you coming in to join us?" Uh, I said, "Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be in it for a year now." She went, "Oh well, I, I better say hello to you then." You know, so and and it was just surreal. Suddenly, this the Queen, you know, of of uh, of, of Coronation Street in the Sharples is suddenly talking to me, you know, and uh, and, and then I used to play um, bridge with uh, Albert Tatlog and Annie Walker, Doris Speed and Jack Howarth. You're talking about Doris yeah. Speed and, da- and and Jack Howarth, yeah, and uh, and also um, God bless him, um, Jeff Hughes, Jeff Hughes, who played Eddie Yates. We'd play bridge every day, you know, and and uh, <laughs> it was like. I'm sat with Annie Walker playing bridge like <laughs> lunchtime, and with her, with with uh, Doris, you always knew when she had a good hand because she'd stand up, <laughs> and you knew she's got all the cards, you know. So, um, you know, and uh, so it, it was. It, it was like suddenly an institution, and they were so lovely. Everyone was so lovely and down to earth, which was. Just uh, a, a great feeling, and and they helped you with the acting because, like you said, I'd not done very much acting, and and you know I was lucky to basically get a year contract, and yeah. you know because at first I um I wasn't that good right at the beginning. Well, it takes a while to ease into these things, doesn't it? And you were they wanted you as the hunk, didn't they? they that's what they were really after at the beginning. They wanted this this hunk to appear on Coronation Street, didn't they? Really. Um, well, it. it because Gail, of course, was one of the few young characters in it at the time, wasn't she, as well? There wasn't many young kids. Well, you weren't young kids, but, you know, young people in it. It was, you know, Gail was one of the few at the time. So I suppose they, I think it was her and um, her friend, wasn't it? Was it Susie Birchall? They were, they were the two girls in it, mainly. Yeah. It? Yeah, they were. Yeah. And, yeah, so, so they wanted to bring me into, to, to, you know, because she'd been in it for about four years. So they thought, well, they'll... She needs to get married now. So um, I was brought in for that. And I don't know whether they um, realised that I'd be as popular um, with everyone, with the, you know, as, as I was. But, but I was. It kind of took off straight away. I started doing all these silly kind of interviews and magazines and stuff. And I was, you know, page seven fella and trying to get me to get my shirt off in every shop because I was so in such great shape because I was a gymnast. So I had all these muscles already and plus used to weight train all the time. So, uh, yeah. You fitted fitted into the mould at the time, didn't you? Because there was, it was the late seventies on TV as as well as Coronation Street. Obviously we had, um, you know, Charlie's Angels with the women with the big hair. Yes. You you were a man with big hair. You had quite a, Quite a big um, sort of mop, didn't you, mop. Riley? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you sort of fitted into that sort of mould, and you were giving giving Coronation Street some some sex appeal. You know, it was uh, it, it was the, that was the times, wasn't it? In, in really. and it was, and and it, you know, and again, you know, I'm really proud of my ten years of uh, of doing Coronation Street. You know, and uh, you know, of course, I wish I was still there, but but I'm you know really proud that um, you know. I was the the heartthrob. I'm really proud. I was the first heartthrob. You know, I remember many years afterwards, you know, meeting other actors from other soaps, you know, um, who 
were also heartthrobs and you know they'd say oh chris Gore, you were the first one you know you were the first one that was there and i basically was you know because um uh it, when it started um uh the guy's been in it for forever uh ken barlow um bill roach he, he kind of was at the time the kind of sexy man but in those days it, it wasn't kind of looked upon the same as heartthrobs in those days was it like in the, in the early 60s you had dennis tanner of course who was a little bit of a yes and he was yes. a bit naughty of course compared to ken he was a bit, bit of a naughty one wasn't he yes and you also had ken's brother didn't you who's played by alan rothwell he was a little bit of a heartthrob as well i suppose so yes there some young yes there, but, the, but you were a little bit you were, you see it, it was the 70s when you arrived you were a little bit more risque weren't you in a sort of Bee Gees kind of way, in a way. <laughs> well, um, I'm telling you, when I went over to America, I got mobbed because everyone thought I was um, one of the Gibb brothers, the young one who, who died first. And, and, and you're quite right, because I had the hair, I had the teeth. Yeah, I got my teeth done just before I joined. Andy Gibb, we, we were about the same age. And, and, I, and honestly, the, the resemblance was, was, was astonishing. So, so yes, it was, I, I was like, a, like a, you know, um, like a, a young BG, which I was really pleased about as well. And you entered, and you entered the show as doing disco. So there you go, it all full circle, isn't it? <laughs> Coming soon to Distinct Nostalgia. Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think. It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband and their mixed-race family growing up in Salford in the early 1970s. A clash of cultures and generations ensues. Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life. But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him, and I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nickel, and Chris Bisson as we mark this classic British film's 21st birthday. It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before. They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. East is East at 21. Coming soon to Distinct Nostalgia. As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz, where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember about. Yeah, well, that that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner cell block. Cell block B. Prisoner cell block H. 
Simply choose your favourite TV show or film and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> they're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know oh. if I can accept that. Coming this autumn. That's the cracker, isn't it? They uh, always are. <laughs> Only here. So when did you first get to meet Lynn Perry then? On the first day. So, you know, when, when I walked in the rehearsal room and then, you know, Julie went, you were following me. I was going to report you to the police for stalking me. You know, so I met her and we told that story and everyone laughed about it. And, and, and I met um, Lynn Perry that day um, straight away. Um, we started to work at two o'clock on a Monday. Um, so 2 p.m. So Lynn, and I met Lynn, I met um, Helen. Uh, I met um, uh, the guy who played my dad, who played Bert, lovely, uh, lovely man. Um, yeah. And so that was it. The first day I was, I was a part of it. And, uh, um, you know, luckily I didn't have that many difficult scenes or long scenes at the beginning. So it was, uh, it, it, that was a special day. I can still remember it now as if it was yesterday. The guy who played your dad was Peter Dudley, of course, wasn't it? Peter Dudley played your dad. Uh, lovely, Pe- lovely Peter Dudley, yeah. So tell us, I loved bit, him. Yeah. tell us a little bit about the dynamics of, of the family. As we said before, Ivy as a character, had been in and out of it uh, sort of in the 1970s. She, she'd sort of grown into this gossipy kind of, you know, it, it's weird with Ivy for me because I grew up in Yorkshire and there, are so, there were so many women just like Ivy Tilsley that I knew when I was growing up in the 1970s. She was, for me, she was one of the, when you watch Coronation Street, she was one of the real authentic characters because there were so many women just like her you know, who, who would gossip in that way, would, you know, be twitching the curtains, that kind of thing, would be, you know, that she was just a great, great, great character. Tell us a bit about, a bit about Lynn and, and um, yeah, just about her as a, as a person, because I know she was a character, I know, you know, on, on screen and off, wasn't she? Well, Lynn was my surrogate mum. She, we've, you know, hit it off almost immediately because of, of what, a, you know, a down-to-earth, lovely, caring person she is. She just is, um, um, well, was one of the, the best people that you could ever meet. She was funny. She was caring. She was generous. Uh, she, she loved the, uh, her acting. She loved the singing. She loved being famous. She loved being Lynn Perry. She loved being Ivy Tilsley. She loved Coronation Street. She just loved it. And... She was just uh, a ball of fire. She, um, and, and constantly, 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 there was dramas, funny dramas of any sort. It doesn't matter what it is, there'd be a drama. Um, you know, she, uh, we, we, me, Helen Worth, uh, and uh, Lynn, we, we all had a flat each just right opposite Granada, which was literally five minutes' walk. So you walk out the flat and then you're, you're at the studios. And, 
you know, for some reason, she would always be late in the, in the morning and she'd come rushing in and she'd, you know, she'd not had her hair done. She, so she'd always wear these, these hats that cover, you know, these women wear, uh, like, you know, they've not done their hair, so they put a hat on, you know, so she always comes in. And she would always have a drama of some sort that we would all have to listen to before we could start work. <laughs> and we'd have 10 minutes or 15 minutes of this, complete drama and you know that we'd all be in hysterics because we know exactly what she's doing and and we we know it'll be funny and you know she'll have probably got locked out in you know the, the flat and she had to climb up the the ladders to get through a window and she called for the you know um the fire brigade and all the fire brigade were taking photos and that and, uh, it's the stories like that would be the same every day and at night time you know um you know, she she uh, she'd bring a cab driver up, and in the time, twenty pound was a lot of money, and she'd give the cab driver, you know, twenty pound to go and get her a pack of a pack of fags, you know, and we'd say, Lynn, you're paying twenty pound for a pack of fags. I know, I I don't care, you know. At that that time, they're probably only three pound or two pound or something like that, um, and, and socially, she'd just be great fun. Um, I got to know her really well, doing loads and loads of uh, personal appearances with her, as well as the acting. Um, but but it was the acting that she loved, and she loved um, getting into an argument with me as Brian. And, you know, we had this scene um, where she had to slap my face, you know, and... Uh, you know, she says, Chris, you know, I, I am going to slap you, you know. <laughs> She's like, I will slap you. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Anyway, she slapped me with the biggest right hand that anyone could ever get. And, it, you know, and it, my reaction was absolutely perfect because it, it was real. It was like, Lynn, what have you done? That hurt. And, you know, and I got a you know, massive red mark on the side of my face, which I didn't mind whatsoever because, you know, as an actor, and especially in Corrie, you'll do anything to get that scene, you know. And she, she just was just incredible. And, you know, and I, you know, I know that she loved to drink and I know that when she left the street, she got herself in all sorts of trouble. But it was just funny trouble. It was lovely trouble. It was, it was mischievous trouble. She was so mischievous. She just wanted to, because she was a comedian, she just wanted to make people laugh. So she would do thing, you know, certain things that people would go, oh my God, that's a little bit embarrassing. But she'd just do it for a laugh, just to make everyone laugh. It wasn't because she was crazy or, or anything. She just was such a lovely person and had such a love, uh, lovely sense of humour and she loved a brand new baby show. <laughs> and of course she was a singer as well, wasn't she? She was a singer as well as a comedian. Incredible singer, yeah. We did a couple of shows together, and uh, I also saw a couple of her acts. But she had a voice to die for. You know, this little powerhouse would kick out this voice, you know, which was just absolutely incredible. And everywhere she went, when she sang, she'd bring the house down. And um, presumably, presumably, she learned her craft and her trade like a lot of people in the North did, which was basically in the working men's clubs and things. Well, you know half or a quarter of the actors coming through Coronation Street uh, as, as characters and, and as regulars, as small part characters and as extras were all on the working men's club scene. You know, um, uh, Vera, um, Liz Dawn, 
you know, um, Jack Duckworth, uh, you know, Bill, they were they were on the uh, the cabaret scene. Even um, even the lady who played Ida, do you remember Ida Clough? Yes, she yes. Was on that scene as well, wasn't she? Yeah. Ida was, yeah, and also the uh, the guy who played my um, my boss in the garage, Bobby Nutt. Uh, he was a comedian on the club scene, and he, you know he had a, he had a great um, you know load of episodes with me um, as my boss of the garage, and uh, you know then he went on to um, Benidorm, you know, yeah. before he passed away, you know. Yeah. So they, they they'd all done the uh, the cabaret scenes, and and you know they, they you know they knew the cannonballs, and they knew you know all of those. Uh, big headliners that were that you know that that were around at the time and you mentioned the garage or the ga garage uh, that's that's the my lasting memory of you is always being in that garage <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and 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 um gail coming in to either give you some food or to find out what the hell was going on or what. you were always in that garage weren't you basically All, always in the garage and and all i really knew about mechanics was from my dad when I was a kid growing up, changing the, uh, checking the oil, checking the water, and that's basically it. So when I've got my head under that uh, uh, bonnet, I'm just wiggling things and pretending to tie this and do that and knock on stuff, but I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And I remember we, we had uh, loads and loads of different directors. Some of them your best friend, uh, most of them your best friend, most of them brilliant, most of them absolutely fantastic. Uh, but you, you had one or two that were hoity-toity directors. You know, you, you couldn't joke around with them. You couldn't go for a drink with them. And, you know, if they laughed, then, ooh, cool, you, you know, he laughed. And, and I had this one particular director who was like, I, everyone was petrified of him. <laughs> and I remember doing this scene in the garage and... Uh, uh, I had to kind of lift my leg up and um, as I'm bending down and he looked at my socks and whenever you're in Coronation Street, no um, costume uh, assistant brings you a pair of socks. You wear your own socks, you know, but nobody says, oh, wear black socks, blue socks. Anyway, in those days, do you remember the fluorescent colored socks? Anyway, I had these fluorescent orange socks on, right? Yeah. And as I lifted my foot up, you could see it on camera. And he said, what the bloody hell are you wearing? Brian Tilsley wouldn't have fluorescent orange socks. Go and get them changed. <laughs> So I kind of scurried off like a naughty little boy and changed my socks and came in and like considered myself well told off. But yes, that garage, oh man, I can remember it now. It's incredible. Always in the overalls. But that reminded me of my days when I worked at the shipyard. I was in overalls all the time, 16 to 18, uh, 18 and a half. I was there for two years. So it was like home from home for me. <laughs> Of course. Going back to Lynn for a second, you mentioned obviously that she, as well as being an actor and a singer, she was a, 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 a comedian. Um, and obviously there was an element of comedy in her, in her part to an extent. But she was, she was essentially, Ivy Tilsley was a pretty, pretty serious character. And she played dra the drama very, very well, didn't she? I mean, and I think that's the, ma the making, I think that's the thing about comedians. Often comedians are very good at drama, aren't they? Well, she was absolutely brilliant. You know, it's so, so true. And she loved being the battle axe. But I do remember her from when she was in the film Yanks. 
because I had a, I was an extra in Yanks. I was on that film for about two weeks as an extra. Um, and, uh, um, and when I saw the film, she gets this close up of, um, you know, when all the Americans are leaving, you know, and, you know, this woman shouted out, you know, uh, you know, oh, my daughter's pregnant. And then she had this massive close up. I can't remember the line, but it was something like, all of the girls are pregnant. And she more or less stole the film just with that performance. And you're right, she used to steal the show all the time. And, you know, and, and with Lynn, you would have to be on your game with her to kind of, you know, to, to stay close to her level of performance. Yeah, she was absolutely brilliant. I mean, what, what a battle axe. And, and, and over the years, um, uh, people would talk about, um, you know, where's Gail and, and, you know, ooh, Bette Lynch and stuff, but they'd go on about Battle Axe Ivy. How was your mum? Oh, God, you poor man, I'm going to put up with her all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, as well as Yanks, you mentioned Yanks, I've just remembered that she was also in Kez as well. Yeah. Kez is the one that kept coming up all the time, like a cult thing. Oh, oh, Lynn was, was in Kez, you know. Oh, she was in Kez, you know. <laughs> oh, and then she'd say, oh, when I was in Kez, massive one, I remember, yeah, massive, massive, all the time, uh, wherever we'd go throughout the years, it would always go back to that she used to be in Kez. <laughs> exactly. Well, of course, it's from it's her area, isn't it? Because she's a, a Yorkshire lass. And yeah. Was, uh, her her um, brother was, uh, is, is Dougie Brown, isn't it? Oh, I love Dougie. I knew Dougie very well. I played with, uh, um, I was on the golf circuit, the celebrity golf circuit with Dougie. So I got to know him so well. Lovely, lovely man. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and a great comedian on, on the, uh, the circuit again. And, and he starred a few times with things with, with um, Lynn as well. I've seen him in a few things where he's been playing parts as well. So they, they obviously, you know, we must have been uh, quite close as, uh, as brother and sister. But in terms of Lynn and her story as Ivy, Ivy was a real, I mean, she was, she was one of the classic Coronation Street characters in, in, in many ways. And there were so many different facets to her. So she had that gossipy side, you know, she had a relationship with, um, a, a friendship with, uh, with Liz Dawn, you know, um, that, that sort of on-off friendship there, which was, you know, there's different clashes, wasn't there, in terms of, how they saw each other and, and, and sort of played off each other. And that was always they, interesting in the factory. Um, they, they were a double act. And, uh, you know, those amazing uh, scenes of them, you know, uh, tackling Mike Baldwin for whatever dispute that they, they, they had, both of them going in. Lynn was a shop steward and, and her backup mate was, you know, was uh, Vera. Um, and that made all of that early stuff, made Vera uh, who she was eventually she became with with uh, with Jack Duckworth because yeah. you know eventually Vera and Jack became stars of the show they did they did and you're right it was, it was shaped by the relationship with, uh, with, with with Ivy and then of course um, you'd also got Ivy's relationship which was always quite interesting with Gail's mum uh, played by Sue Nichols, Audrey, of course, because she came in around roughly around the same time as you in 1979 originally, didn't she, if I remember right? Yes, yes, and then came back a bit later, yeah. Yeah, and, and that was a clash because they were completely different people, weren't they? Fireworks with, with, with Gail's mum and, you know, fireworks with Gail all the time, you know, and Ivy was always at the centre 
of the, the, the dispute for whatever reason. And she would always be causing the dispute. Whatever the problem was, she would cause the problem. Gail was never really good enough for Brian, was she? Was she? Exactly. You know, I, I, I think you're quite right. I don't think anybody would have been good enough for Brian uh, in, in in Ivy's eyes. That's cause, because, <laughs> you know, God bless her, Gail could do no wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the religious side? I mean, that kept coming back all the time, didn't it? And, and it's true, there are women out there who, in certain parts of the North, Liverpool and, you know, various parts, who do hold those strong views. And she was, you know, she was passionate about it, wasn't she? Oh yes, yeah. The character was, um, uh, you know, and that would come up, you know, again all the time of uh, in in any of the storylines, you know, and uh, and again she would play it like beautifully, you know. Um, but Brian uh, wasn't uh, as that religious, but but she was, you know, proper proper on it, and uh, um. You know, yeah, and, and again, the way she played it was just like, you know, so, so special. And what about Dad? Um, you mentioned Peter, Peter Dudley, who played Bert. Bert I mean, Bert, he just had a fantastic name for a start. But of course, he was, he was completely, totally henpecked, wasn't he, basically? He was henpecked Bert. Um, and he was always in the middle and always, you know, trying to... Uh, you know, advise, you know, Brian of, of what you should be doing. And, you know, your mum means well, she loves you, you know. He would come and, and not scream and shout at me and slap me. He'd come and talk to me as a man, you know. <laughs> and yeah, and he was so hempecked, you know. I can see his face now, like, he would always have this uh, this look on his face where he'd look up to the sky, you know, and look at me and wink at me and go, oh, God, there she goes again. <laughs> He 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 was a lovely man, and and uh, you know I I, um, I, rem I remember Peter used to drive this yellow um, Ford uh, Datsun, this you know Japanese sports car. Oh, and I and I loved it so much. I bought it from him. <laughs> I called it the yellow torpedo, and um, uh, but yeah, but um, he, he, Peter he was again he, uh, uh, off the set. He was a complete comedian, you know, not the grumpy Bert. On his character wasn't funny. His character was henpecked. But off, so so off the set, you've got him joking and messing about, and then you've got Lynn joking and messing about. So it it was just completely. And, and then and, and Bet Lynch, she was always in it, and also uh, Deirdre um, and Kirkbright. So it it was like it was like working in this madhouse. Everyone was just completely like bonkers uh, you know having fun it was like crazy you know i mean i would even wear you know for a joke going to into the rehearsal room i put uh Deirdre's shoes on you know so i'd go hopping in in these high heel shoes and and it it, it it was fun you know from from the minute we got there till the minute we left it was uh and, and as i say and lynn was always at the heart of it always she was an entertainer away from the street you know singer and all the rest of it did she ever, I mean, we, we often hear about Barbara Knox singing and things like that. Did Lynn burst into song at, at, from time to time? Oh, oh, God, she would, yeah. Especially when she's had a few Brandy and Baby Shams, yeah. <laughs> She'd love a sing song, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, she, uh, yeah, 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 Barbara Knox, she, she, never, she never did, but she was, she was always very sweet, lovely, 
and reserved, beautiful. But Lynn, yeah, she would always give us one of her um, belters, especially when we were out. If we were out and she's had a few brandy and baby champs, we'd always get a song from her. <laughs> Sounds as though it was, it was tremendous fun. But of course, in those days, you were only doing, not saying you weren't working because you were, but you were only doing two episodes a week. So you actually had time to properly rehearse and things. Whereas today, they're doing like five, five or six episodes a, you know, a week. It's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, well, so you had a bit more time, didn't you, to actually get into the parts in those days? Well, it, it, it was civilised then. We did two episodes a week, you know, uh, Monday and Wednesday. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, one of my lines in one of my, when I do cabaret or, or um, uh, um, opening something, I do a 10 minute speech, you know. And I'd always say, oh, no wonder Brian died because he got stabbed on the Wednesday, but the ambulance didn't arrive till, till Monday, you know, and, and it was easy. And, and what we did on a Monday morning, if you were in the outside filming, if you saw any filming of like Jack and his pigeons in, in the backyard, they'd always do it Monday morning. So not everybody was in the filming. So uh, if you weren't in the filming, then you didn't have to start till two o'clock. But if you were in the filming, you'd have to get there at seven o'clock. It'd be freezing cold. You'd have to put your thermals on. Um, it wasn't very nice, and you, and, but you'd do it and get it out of the way. But, uh, but, but if you weren't filming, we'd start on the Monday at two o'clock, and then we just block, right? So the good thing about it was you didn't have to know your lines, you know, um, on Monday afternoon. So, so what we always used to do is we'd, we'd uh, you know, you'd start learning in lines in the Monday afternoon, you'd, you'd all get together and you start running the scenes together. Say, okay, can we go through lines? Uh, and then maybe on, on a Tuesday morning, then we'd run the first episode, the Monday episode on Tuesday morning, then rehearse the second episode Wednesday uh, on, the, on the, the Tuesday afternoon. Um, so we had time to, even though we were messing about, we all knew that we had to have our lines, you know, you'd have to, you'd have to be able to do the scene by the end of, uh, uh, of of the rehearsals, so you know if you if you had a load of episodes, a load of scenes to do, then you'd have to spend a bit more time at home reading them. But otherwise, you'd kind of learn the scenes in between the next scene. Oh, I've got I've got fifteen. I've got half an hour now. Quite right. Let's run through the lines. You know, so it was pretty easy um, then. And then Wednesday, on the Wednesday afternoon, we do a, a technical run where all the crew would come in and and look at the show and. So you'd have to know it then. Um, and then, you know, we'd have Thursday morning off and then we'd film it Thursday afternoon and Friday. So it was a civilised time to learn your lines and not be pressured. Now, Jesus, how the hell do they learn the lines and go in and do it straight away? I've just done Hollyoaks and that's what we did. And it was terrifying. I did three episodes of Hollyoaks and... You, you, you don't get chartered to go through the lines with anyone. You go up, next thing you're on set and you've got to give the performance of your life. <laughs> Ridiculous. And you, you met, and you met your son there, didn't you? Ridiculous. I played his dad again. That's like, that was ridiculous, you know? Um, but yeah, but now, you know, they're all doing these six episodes and there's no rehearsal time. You turn up, you go on the set, you run through the scene and then you record it. You know, and then you look at Corrie, you look at EastEnders, you look at Hollyoaks, you look at Emmerdale, you know, and all these soaps, and you think, my God, they're good. 
you'd think they were rehearsing all the time, but you know, but obviously not. But how the heck do they learn their lines <laughs> and do five episodes in one week? I mean, it's it's astounding. You know, I know that it would be that I would find that difficult. Well, famously, didn't didn't Julie Goodyear? She went back into Corrie for a while, didn't she? But I gather that she found the whole, you know, the, just the just the, the the time scale and the you know the, the, the just the all that a bit too much, really, because she was used to it, you know, used to the old-fashioned way, wasn't she? You know. Yeah, and and I can quite understand that one hundred percent. It's like is you know. Um, the old way was civilized. It, there's not too much pressure, but the new way, it's like get in, get it done, get it done, get it done. And I think by the time she went back, she was at a certain age where, you know, she must have thought, "I've done it, I've done it, and I've done it, and I've done it." And you know, why should I spend all my time learning my lines, you know, when I don't have to? Um, and I, I can imagine that 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 uh, that would be a you know, uh, one of the reasons why she she didn't continue was because, uh, you know, always when we were doing two episodes, she would always have the most scenes. I remember, like, God, Julie, God, you you don't stop, do you? You know, so she'd have like, you know, in one episode, eight, nine scenes in one episode. So, you know, m most of us only have two or three or four, uh, unless it's a major storyline. So, you know, she if she would she'd have been if she's in the robes all the time. You know, and there's five episodes. That means she's in probably about 20, 15 scenes in a week. <laughs> you had, have a heart, you had a heart attack. You had a fair amount of scenes with Julie, didn't you? Obviously in the Rovers and stuff. Um, yeah. But, you know, there was, there was probably a bit, of, a bit of flirting going on between uh, Brian and Bette at times, wasn't there? <laughs> um, do you know something? No. You know, yeah, no. Off, off the set, yeah. We became best buddies, right? And we used to go out and party together and, and go on the pool together. You know, we'd, uh, uh, so, you know, but on the set, I don't ever remember, I don't ever remember, uh, you know, Bet saying, oh, Brian, you've got a nice bum, or, or you know, Brian saying, oh, Bet, oh, you're sexy, you know. I don't ever remember that, no. But, but off the set, <laughs> we did lots of flirting. <laughs> now, she, she, she's got a reputation, Julie Goodyear, of being both on and off set a larger than life character <laughs> well well the thing with, with julie is she is like the, the sweetest person again she really is she, but but she knows that she put the work in to become you know the queen of uh, of the rovers and you know she put the work in to 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 take over from pat phoenix to take over from um uh, annie walker you know, as the kind of main character in the show, and quite rightly so. So she did it because she earned it, but she did it with a tongue, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek uh, kind of way. Um, Big cigarette if, holders and things like that. Yeah. If, if, you, if you peed her off, right, then, you know, she would, like, go for you, um, you know, but... You know, I, I knew her so well and loved her so much that, you know, our relationship was just like love and fun and, and you know, understanding and respect and stuff. So, you know, I, I would sit in her dressing room all day for hours. I, when we do scenes, I just go and sit in her dressing room and we just talk all day, you know. And um, so, you know, I got to know you really. And, and I was lucky enough to go on a, 
uh, a trip to uh, Canada with her. Me and Johnny Briggs went on a trip. So the three of us were together for like two weeks. We're in Canada doing these promotions. So, you know, I, I was lucky enough to, to, to get to know her really well. And, and she really is like a, a wonderful person. But she played the part on set and offset as like you know the queen of cory <laughs> you did do that very good and you mentioned uh, johnny briggs there of course you know johnny was in the show for you know 30 years and obviously you know came into it in the mid mid 1970s and became this sort of this this sort of baddie in a way although he wasn't really but he became a bit of a baddie in terms of it, it was a way of you know it was this southerner had come into the show and you know he was sort of uh, making mischief and then of course you had all the stuff with ken and deirdre and and, and all the rest of it um but he's another actor isn't he a bit like um uh, lim perry who'd been around for a long time had done a lot of things before coronation street loads of things loads of films you often see him now you watch talking pictures or whatever he's there you know he'd, he'd had a long career before he arrived in corrie hadn't he i agree with you yeah and um i see his name pop up all the time and i see him like you say talking pictures and the site the saint and stuff like that and um you, yeah yeah he was um no hiding place as well like uh that was johnny's kind of uh claim to fame before cory you know oh yeah johnny was in no hiding place which was this a, a series in the 60s and stuff and you know and, and uh and it was actually johnny who got me into golf you know because he's a golf nut and uh so we had, we used to play golf like you know at least two or three times a week um, as well, and uh, uh, he was a great actor, uh, a great drinking drinking partner. But he'd always be on his lines, you know. He'd been doing it for so long. Yeah, definitely. He was definitely one of the one of the iconic um, characters. I've had mental health problems, I think, for most of my life. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all backgrounds. My friends didn't quite understand why I was being the way I was being, so support was, was pretty much non-existent. A brand new podcast brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters. Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying. We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z. If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water. We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide. I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead. This way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes. He's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out. He doesn't know how to get help. You know, it's always been this taboo subject. Join me, Professor Alice Roberts, for the very first edition of Life Matters. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. And visit ZeroSuicideAlliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives. 
Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, stay away from me, we're not going to get on. <laughs> a brand new show from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a, a child, it's not spoken about much, women sort of own this area. <laughs> we're sort of open it was going to be like the old films I watched where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You just go, you're going to see your father now for 10 minutes. <laughs> Hello, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. Let's talk a bit about your relationship on screen with Gail, because... It was that it was there, as we said before, from the beginning. It wasn't as if you came in and dis, you know, discovered Gail. It was sort of it was cemented right from the very start. How easy or how hard was that for you and Helen to sort of you know sort of build that chemistry as the two two characters? Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. It was right from the first episode, and um, you know because I'd not had a lot of experience i've done a few small parts here and there and stuff and um but i'd not had a lot of experience and i wasn't really that good when i first um started so i don't know how long it went on for um maybe about three months six months um you know if you see we never ever kissed each other i remember kissing her once and it was like kissing my first kiss behind the uh the in school in the bike sheds you know um i kind of you know, made sure I did a lot of training. I did a lot of work. Um, you know, the scenes got better, um, you know, and eventually, eventually she warmed to me. I don't know, maybe six months, something like that. And then we became best of friends. We used to spend Christmas together um, many times and we would do personal appearances by the ton. But then we became great friends and, you know, very funny girl. You can't believe she's like 70. It's, I mean, that's ridiculous, or nearly 70, or around about that, 68, something like that. And uh, I was only looking at the other day, and it's like she's still got the hair, and, she, she, you know, she still looks more or less the same. She does, um, she does. She does. Yeah, but of she course, does. At, that, at that time, when you went into it, she was, um, she because she, she'd, she'd worked with Susie Birchall in sort of, in, in, in a shop that Elsie ran, I think, or something. And, you know, it, it was all, obviously she hadn't got the kids by that point and the various marriages, I mean, you were the first. Um, but, you know, she was a, she was a different character in a way than she's become now, wasn't she, in a way? Yes, they, they, they were kind of like the Liverbirds type of, like the Coronation Street Liverbirds, weren't they? You know, and I remember the clothes that, um, that they used to wear, the same thing. Yeah, you, you know, you're right. And she was, she was like very, very girly, very young, very kind of innocent. And, um, but, but then suddenly, as soon as she got married, she, she started to kind of get the, the Ivy Tilsley battle axe kind of characters coming in where she used to scare the living daylights out of Brian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's like, like most blokes of that period, I suppose. You, you know, you suddenly got married and you became henpecked then, didn't you? That was the point. Oh, completely. <laughs> completely scared stiff of her. <laughs> he was scared stiff, you know. <laughs> oh, just, just remind me, did they, 
because did they all live in the same house for a while? You know, Ivy and Bert and Gail and, um, and, and Brian, did they all live in the same house for a bit? Yes, we did, yes. Um, before we got our own house, they had to put them there for the, for the conflict, you know, uh, between, you know, um, uh, Gail and, and Ivy, you know, Ivy not um, uh, stopping being Brian's mum and interfering with things. And, and so there was a lot of tension, a lot of arguments about that, a lot of confrontations of, of you know, Ivy, stay out, you know, <laughs> yes, you're his mother, but I'm his wife. Uh, yeah, so one of the inter- one of the funny things about Ivy uh, and 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 Gail when they're all living together, of course, was that the, the constant clash really was how much was Gail looking after Brian and whether Brian was getting his snap or not, and that would come up all the time, wouldn't it? I don't remember Riley. All of that television about him not getting his right snap. I mean, and those arguments over you know, Gail not looking after him. When you look back at it, and these are all major storylines, and when you think about it, it's like very trivial, isn't it? But at the time, that was it, you know. You're not looking after my son. You know, you're, you know you've got to pull your finger out. <laughs> no, but, that, but that's real life, isn't it? That's what people generally are often talking about. You know, it's often those kind of tensions are where the, you know, that the clashes come in life. You know, and it's not, it's not the murders and all the other things that go on. It's the, it's those things, isn't it? Really, it's so true. I mean, you know, with my girlfriend, we had a fall like the other day just because um, I didn't put the, uh, um, the the curtain wrap on properly. You know, <laughs> we didn't speak for two days. <laughs> it, it really is crazy, but that is you're right. It is that kind of thing. Of course, the soaps have changed a lot, and I know that Ella Worth's character. Uh, Gail has been through a hell of a lot since she uh, since, since she was with you. You know, <laughs> so, so she she's had yeah. so many. She had loads of different boyfriends and, and partners, and and loads of real awful things happened to her. But um, going back to that period, though, and and we're talking there about those kind of storylines. A lot of it was about the language, wasn't it? It was about the it was about the words. It was about the characters. It was about the you know, for some things could be quite simple because it was about you know, something had, had got Hilda worked up, you know, and or Ivy worked up in some particular way, and that would form the, the centre of the of attention of the programme, you know. Well, I'll tell you who's responsible for that, and I wanted to, to mention him because he was my saviour. Um, Tony Warren, the guy who, uh, who wrote, came up with the idea and wrote it. And what you've just described there is exactly what he wanted, and that's exactly what, um, you know, he... Um, encourage the writers to do so it's Tony Warren you know and when we we uh, we started off and as I told you I wasn't very good at the beginning and uh, uh, he, he said Chris you know let you know let, let me help you and he used to go through my lines with me and rehearse with me um, and uh, he, he put so much work into me um, and he was such a fantastic person, a lovely, lovely person. And he was coronation should be through and through. But it was him. It was him who came up with these, you know, uh, the, the language um, that was hysterically funny. He came up with a language that meant so much. Um, and, but that, that was all down to Tony Warren. Now, your character, as we said before, you know, you're with Gail from the beginning. 
there was the constant clash between uh, Gail's mum, Audrey, and Ivy as to, you know, um, whether Gail was good enough for you, etc. And then, of course, came the whole thing of the proposal and you getting married, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think somewhere along the lines, wasn't there also some issue about Ivy was terribly upset because you were talking about moving away at one point as well. Do you remember that? Oh yes, yes. She wasn't having that. <laughs> no, she wasn't having that. That didn't last long. That didn't last long. She, what, she wasn't having that at all. Yeah. <laughs> what do you remember about the wedding? Because soap weddings have always been big, and that would have been a. In fact, I remember. I think I even remember uh, editions of the TV Times with both of you on the front. You know, Gail and Brian's wedding. It was a huge, huge thing. What do you remember about that? Absolutely incredible. We were on location. We were in this massive church. Um, you know, we had the best man, and uh, oh, it was like, you know, and, and you know, we had the, uh, um, you know, the, the vicar who was actually brilliant, who married us, and the, and and it was a proper full-on like um, epic. It felt like it was an epic, you know. And I could, you know, maybe because I see the photos all the time. That photo of, of me and Gail. In, in the wedding pops up everywhere and brings back unbelievable me- uh, rem- uh, memories of that. That was like so good. I think we filmed it over like two days in this church somewhere in Manchester. Am I right in saying that Ivy got her own way and it ended up being a Catholic wedding? You probably of course. Yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> that was, of course, that was a massive, a massive um, storyline uh, between her and Gail. And, uh, and, and of course, Ivy always gets her own way. Um, yes. But that that was a great experience. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Um, so, when you were when you were in it, this, it, I mean, bearing in mind as you said earlier on that the viewing figures were massive at that particular time, you were a young man in the in in the in the in the, in the soap. There weren't that many young people in soaps at the time. There were a few, but not not a huge amount. Brookside hadn't come along at, at the beginning when you were in there. EastEnders wasn't there. Emmerdale was a bit of a sleepy soap, as we know. Crossroads was still was still around, but again, not many massively, you know, young people in there. So you're one of the few young people who were, who would be in people's lives, you know, a couple of times a week. You know, they knew you, they thought they knew you, kind of thing. How did that alter your life in terms of, you know, going out, enjoying yourself, having fun? You know, you, you come. You know, being in one of these programs comes with a degree of responsibility as well, doesn't it? Yeah, but you know, um, when you're 21 and uh, wanting to be successful, and I suppose wanting fame, um, I I don't remember kind of like being desperate for fame. For me, it was just the work. Um, but you know, uh, to suddenly get an A-list job, you know, so early in my career and so easily in my career was fantastic. Um, but, but, you know, the, the, one of the things that Bill Podmore said to me, um, you know, when I, we had the interview, he said, look, you know, if we offer you the part, you know, you're, you're going to become, you know, well-known and very famous. And um, that means that you, your life no longer will be your own. Um, can, are you happy about that? Can you deal with that? And I went, oh yes, <laughs> I can deal with that. And, uh, and you know, and it, it basically 
took off from the first night that I was on. I think it was a Wednesday night. I think I was on uh, a Wednesday night. And I went home to um, my parents' house to, to watch it with my family. And my niece at the time was three or four or five or something like that, three, three or four or five or something like that. And I remember uh, seeing her face with this complete, like, utter shock of looking at me on telly and then looking at me in the flesh. And she couldn't believe how that I'm in the telly and I'm also there, you know, in real life. Um, and that night we went out to celebrate with my dad, with my brother and stuff. And we went to our local club, Madison, which was, uh, you know, our local club. And I'd been away from Middlesbrough maybe two years. And I remember turning up and there was a massive queue. And I remember walking in, not going to the front at all, but then the security seeing me is, oh, go oh, yeah, guy from Coronation Street. Yeah, you were there. You were on tonight, weren't you? Come in. And I went into this club and there must have been... 500 people in this club and i'm telling you my my dad had to form a queue of people wanting to come to meet me and that was the first night and from from that on and then i started doing you know lots of newspaper stuff and uh, and stuff and so from from then on it was just like being a pop star no matter where we went, it, we'd get mobbed all the time. And when we did the, the personal appearances, there'd be thousands of people there. And as I say, my dad used to come along and, and you know, my, my dad, uh, he, he died a year later. Uh, and I was just so happy that uh, he could see me um, being successful. He'd come to the to the to my PA's personal appearances and, I, and I'd see him like, oh, okay, no, stand in line, get in line. You, you'll get a photo. Don't worry, don't push it. He'll sign a photo for you. And that's one of my kind of proudest moments, you know, when, before my dad passed away, that he actually saw me in, in something as wonderful as uh, um, uh, Coronation Street. Because when I was 18 and I went down, I told you, for my first job, I was in a, a bed sit, probably six by six, eight by eight at the, at, at the most, uh, with a bed and all that. And my mum and dad came down to see me. And my mum sat in the bed and cried and said, oh, Chrissy, come home. Please come home. I said, Mom, are you kidding? I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, I, I just took it all in my stride and, and, and loved every minute of it and tried to, you know, be a, um, a friendly, you know, celebrity. And, you know, I'd never, ever say to someone, sorry, no, I can't do that. Um, you know, and I always try, always tried to be Mr. Nice Guy because it was... It was a gift from God, as I said before, you know, to be well, recognised. But Manchester, you, you're in, based in Manchester. Manchester, compared to London, is a relatively small place. Um, you probably, I suppose, as a young guy, you probably would go out to nightclubs and things while you were here and while you were in Manchester. Um, what, what was that experience like? Obviously, you'd have people wanting to you know, get to know you in terms of your autographs and all this stuff. But were there other pressures in the sense of, you know, we've always had a, an annoying press in this country. You know, did they, did, did you ever feel that they were out to try and get something on you? And do you know what I mean? You know, I mean, they're probably worse now than they were then, but they've always been pretty awkward, haven't they? I mean, how, how was your relationship with the press? And did you know they were, because they'd be around somewhere taking pictures and things like that, wouldn't they? A lot of the time. Yeah, in, in the early days, it was, it was very nice and easy, you know, back end of the uh, 70s. But it's when we got into the 80s, 81, 82, and 
Stringfellows around London and the paparazzi. It's when the paparazzi um, uh, um, started to take, you know, photos. And then, um, you know, it was so easy to be out and about having fun. And then somebody say something stupid or some girl trying to be funny and um, trying to get to pull you into some kind of argument and some kind of fight and get a photo and sell it to the papers. Um, it, that did become, become more as 81, 82, 83, 45, where you then suddenly started to not trust people and not go to certain places and watch who you spoke to because, you know, I got stung quite a lot at times, you know, with the press and, uh, and people you know, doing the dirty on me. Um, so, it, you know, at the beginning it was good. But again, you know, the, 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 that bad side of, of the fame was nowhere near as the good side. It was worth it, you know. And you just you had have, to go along with it, you know. Did you have lots of female fans? Did people? <laughs> did lots of women write to you and, and things? I mean, what was your what was your what was Brian Tilsley's fan base? <laughs> well, describe a typical Brian Tilsley fan. Oh, oh, I, I'll tell you what's funny that now though, when when I you know I meet them now and and you know they're my age and they. Um, uh, I've got four kids and some of grandkids and stuff. Um, I, I think later on, he became kind of, you know, the uh, um, the mums and the grandmums, um, I think. Uh, you know, and, and I was told as well that um, I was kind of a gay icon as well at some point. Because <laughs> I'd always have my shirt off. <laughs> I, could, I think you probably were. But also, you, you know, I can imagine... Yeah, I mean, there are women of a certain age, aren't there? My partner's like this. He's in, he's in his late 30s. But there are women of a certain age who just smother him and mother him. And I can imagine Brian being the kind of guy that the older women just wanted to mother all the time. You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. yes he was. <laughs> but, um, you know, wherever you know, we used to go, uh, from the show, we, we'd, we'd all get mobbed everywhere we'd go. We'd get mobbed, and, and who would and you go out? Who would you go out with? Which which stars would you go and socialise with? Um, again, as I said, uh, Lynn Ivy, Lynn Perry, uh, Johnny Briggs, um, Julie Goodyear, uh, Jeff Hughes was a good party pal of mine. Me and him, we used to go everywhere uh, together. Um, he, you know, in fact, it was him who uh, introduced me to Peter Stringfellow. Um, he said, come on, you know, you're in the show now. On the first day of rehearsals, he took me to the Millionaire Club. And uh, he said, I want to meet you to introduce you to Peter Stringfellow. He's the owner. You know, this is the Millionaire Club. It's the place where we all go. And it was my first day of rehearsals. And he, he took me to this booth. And there was this guy with long hair with um, three girls. And it, they were all kind of in a huddle and stuff. And he had his arm around all three girls. And he lifted his head up. And I'm 21 years old, right, from Middlesbrough. Don't have a clue about anything. And uh, he said, oh, Chris, hello, I'm Peter Stringfellow. This is my club, but now this is your club. I want you to meet my wife. This is my wife, Coral. Um, this is Coral's girlfriend, uh, Elaine. And this is my girlfriend, Sharon. I don't know the names. It was like, what? <laughs> Are you sure? This is show business, you know. 
And also remember in, 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 the, uh, in the Millionaire Club, David Soul came in, you know, just at the height, the height of his fame. This was maybe a few weeks later, by the time I'd kind of like was a regular. And David Soul came in and he was doing his music tour, and, but it was hot on the, on the heels of uh, Starsky and Hutch. And, uh, you know, I said hello to him and, you know, he paid his bill. And it was the first time I'd seen a gold American Express card. It was like, what? A gold American Express card. So, um, you know, you know, I met Freddie Starr in there. That's became good friends with Freddie Starr and, and stuff. And uh, what I did love, though, I did love being a celebrity and meeting other celebrities. And that was the, that was the, the best for me. When you'd meet them and they'd show you respect and say hello. Like Michael Caine was really nice to me when I met him. And um, I, I did love that. I did love being amongst other celebrities and they'd kind of give you respect. Yeah, and that um, was a real character, wasn't he? Of course, died not so long ago, didn't he? Can you believe it? And, and you know, and the sad thing about it, you know, there's four, four Springfellow brothers and they all passed away within six months of each other. Really? God. Yeah, God. yeah. It was, um, that was a really sad moment, that sad time. Because um, they, they really, you know, uh, Peter really um, put Manchester on the map as far as the nightlife's concerned. And then he did the same thing in London, you know, with Stringfellow. So, um, um, you know, he was, you know, he knew everybody, Peter, you know, and, uh, and, you know, we'd be in his clubs all the time. <laughs> going, going back to Jeffrey Hughes, you just mentioned, we, we don't get a chance to mention Jeffrey much really in any of these things. Cause obviously, cause Jean's not around anymore. I met Jean before she died. Obviously, fantastic actress Jean Alexander and, and, and Bernard Jones. You were you were around when they were still having their sort of their their, their triple act, as it was of you know of Eddie and um, and and uh, you know Stan and Hill, Stan. And whatever. I mean, they were they were just. I mean, some of those scenes were classic, weren't they? Classic. What about the time when you know he he, he Stan got the, the 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 bin bag wrong, where instead of throwing out the the rubbish, she threw out her clothes at washing. You know, oh, it was it was magical to watch. It really was, you know. And you know, we, we'd watch it in rehearsals, and then we'd, you know, they'd be on set, and you'd go down and watch it on set, and and you, you're watching, you know, like you know, this amazing show that you were brought up with, and it's there right in front of you. You know, they they were incredible. I used to play um, bridge with with um, Stan Ogden as well, Bernard Jewins. He he he'd play bridge as well. Yeah. Because again, a bit uh, like um, I like Ivy's, you know, like sorry, like Lynn's character Ivy, um, Jean's character Hilda was there was something real about it, wasn't it? You really believed that Hilda was was you know that Jean was Hilda, basically. Well, as we know, and 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 you know, you pointed out uh, earlier about uh, characters. There's one in every street, isn't there? There's one in every neighbourhood. There's one in every pub, you know, which is the neighbourhood pub. The you know, and and I've heard on numerous times when I've been around the country, uh, oh, she's a Hilda Ogden of uh, da da da, <laughs> you yeah. know. And so, like you say, um, it's an, another great character. I suspect, thinking, looking back at it, that Ivy and Hilda. They didn't really cross that much, really, because I think they were very similar in their own little ways. Because they were both gossips, weren't they? And they yeah, did, but they did. They did have. Uh, they did have a, a few battles, definitely. They did. Yeah, you're right. Yes, they did have a, have a have a good few battles because they were just too good. 
you know, you, 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 you know, to, to get both of them at the same time going hammer and tongs at each other was like beautiful to watch. <laughs> <laughs> did, um, did, did, you, did you get to have many scenes? Because I know she was in and out of it towards, the, towards that point. Um, did you get to have many scenes with, with Pat Phoenix? Oh, again, I was lucky enough to uh, strike up a, an amazing relationship with Pat Phoenix. And um, she, again, another one who took me under her wing. Um, and uh, I opened a club in Manchester, you know, and she came, she came to open it for me. And I remember putting her on a chariot with horses, pulling up outside the club. And she was so much fun. And, you know, many, many times she would have parties around her house in Closet where she used to live. Um, and I'd go down there and uh, I was around when she kind of, um, you know, linked up with Tony. Tony Booth. Tony Booth, yeah, when she looked up with him. And he was, you know, uh, around us all the time, going out and socialising and stuff. And um, yeah, she was fantastic with me. Gave me lots of lots of advice, acting and stuff. And um, I spent many a time talking to her. And I suppose the thing about a lot of those women at the time, you know, we mentioned uh, Julie Goodyear, but you know, Doris Speed and um, and, and Violet Carson, who played Ina Sharples and whatever. You know, they were huge, huge stars. They were sort of our equivalent of Hollywood in a way, weren't they? The yes, they, they were. Thing, you know? Yes, they were. And and they were just so down to earth and lovely and easy to talk to. But yes, I mean, I never, ever forgot, you know, when I was talking to Pat Phoenix of like, I'm talking to now like a, a, a legend. Um, and it was just such a privilege to kind of, you know, talk to her as a friend um, and, you know, and to be a part of that. So, you know, that's why... You know, I love talking about this because it was a special, special time um, for me to be involved with uh, with all these amazing characters and and this like, you know, this um, the show that was just part of like you know uh, British history. I think you're right. I think I think that period that you were in it was particularly good because you got the old characters and actors who've been there from the beginning, but you were bring they were, they were starting to bring new ones on who were equally as good. And it was a really interesting transitional period for Corrie, really. I think, and, and, and of course, television at that time, you know, the 70s actually was at its zenith. It was doing exceptionally well. You know, people, you know, millions of people were watching programmes and things. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcast. New to distinct nostalgia. Dale. How the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story. What choice do you have? 
tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a good-looking kid. I don't have anyone else on my books like you. How about I start to represent you? A moving 40-minute drama based on the life and career of Rock Hudson. Yes! Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life. Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne. Rock! Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Not Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood. Listen here on the Distinct Nostalgia podcast or go to distinctnostalgia.com. We got to do something about your voice, kid. We're going to snap your vocal cords. What? Ah. Uh, louder. Ah. Uh, louder. Uh, Rock. Winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look, Dale. I'm dying of this godforsaken disease. And pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way. What about the whole issue of being written out how did that come about and who decided on your the method as it were yeah um i you know i kind of stupidly uh, lost lost myself over this and um when i told you that we went on a trip um with uh johnny briggs and um uh, Julie Goodyear, we went to, to we went with Bill Podmore as well, and we went for, to promote um, Coronation Street in Canada, and we went to Toronto uh, on this trip, and um, we went over to do a, uh, a telethon for New Zealand, where it, it was an, an annual uh, event that happened, and they get celebrities from around the world, and because Coronation Street was so so big in New Zealand, we got invited to do a telethon. Um, uh, so, but they put the three of us, um, in, in separate places with other celebrities and they put me in, um, Christchurch with, uh, Lisa Gibbons, who was a, an American, you know, TV, uh, host. And, um, we ended up being on this 24 hour telethon and supposedly, you know, falling in love. And I kind of lost myself a little bit and got carried away with the whole thing. And, uh, um, decided, you know, let's get married, and um, I decided to give it all up, and uh, you know, and I went to to Bill Podmore and told him, and um, and said, look, you know, I'm leaving to um, uh, to get married, um, and then they decided, you know, to kill the character, which. Uh, from now afterwards, uh, you know, I've been told they regret doing it, and I'm sad that they did it. Um, but it was my decision to leave, and it was a kind of difficult time then because suddenly I'm leaving something that I love, and uh, and it was a bad time. And uh, you know, when I reflect now, I think, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> well, why leave something you love? So it, it was a difficult time leaving. Um, and it's took me a kind of long time emotionally to kind of accept uh, me leaving that wonderful job that I've just been talking to you about and all those wonderful times and to leave it so quickly and so easy and just, you know, so flippantly. 
Were you involved in the? I mean, what what was the? Can you remember? Can you remember the final scenes that you were involved in? Do you remember those? Remember <laughs> it all happening? Go on. <laughs> How can I forget them? Yeah. Well, they, they, they allowed me to um, orchestrate the fight scene at the end and the stabbing, so I had a good time uh, with that. And thought, if I'm going out, I'm going out with a with a with a bang. And uh, I. Um, was able to do a headbutt and a, a, a knee in the in, in the waist and you know do a little bit of star screen hutch fighting <laughs> which really doesn't happen in Corey. it's just one slap and you fall over so we did a bit of that and uh and you know and then, then the dramatic knife scene which uh when they cut to it it was like a pen knife you know <laughs> how can you die from that <laughs> um and, and and funny enough talking about um new zealand when they did the 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 scene, the death scene, and I was told afterwards that when they did the the, the scene in in England, uh, the, the director um, did this dramatic shot of this knife and got some light on this pen knife, and it was only about two inches long, you know, the pen knife. But in in, in uh, over in New Zealand, they cut that out because they they found it too violent. Um, and, and uh, yeah, and we did the scene and, you know, and I admit I, di- I did when I went into the dressing room to get changed, I did cry and thought, my God, I can't believe I'm leaving somewhere that I love. Nothing to do about the fame, nothing to do about the money, leaving a job that I loved. All of us loved it. You know, we'd be there for 18 hours and it wouldn't be like work. Um, you'd hang around, it wouldn't be like work. So it, it, it was a big... Uh, it was a you know a, a horrible time in my life to be honest. How did the how did your fellow actors react to the fact that you were going? Did they think you were a bit bonkers or what? Listen, you know, they're all supportive and you know, as long as they're okay, you know, <laughs> as long as everyone's okay. But, you know, other people that would leave, and I would think, why would they leave? What are they leaving for? Are you crazy? Jeez, you know. Um, but everyone was lovely. You know, sorry to see me go. Quite a few people said, change your mind and all that stuff, you know, but... Um, I suppose there's one thing to be written out. It's being killed off, isn't it? Because if you've been written out, they've been in that possibility of going back. And, I mean, you've got... You know, you, if you were still alive as the character now, you could have gone back to see Nick and, you know, and all the rest of it. I know you ended up working with one of the Nicks, anyway, on Hollyoaks recently, but... Uh, but, you know, it's sort of... It's that thing, isn't it? That finality, because because it had taken up so much of your life and been your life for so, you know, 10, 11 years or whatever, suddenly not to have it must be like being bereaved in a way. I know it was, yeah. I mean, if they'd, if they'd have said to me at the time, Chris, you know, are you sure you, you want to do this? Because if you, um, if you leave, then, you know, we'll kill the character. I'd have said to them, well, well, I don't want that, so <laughs> I'm not leaving. <laughs> um, but, you know, I went to them and said, right, that's it, I'm going. And maybe because I was so abrupt and uh, about it, they, they you know, kind of said, okay, let's, let's have a bit of drama. Let, let's make the most of it. And, you know, and, uh, and, and we did, you know. And uh, um, so, you know, I, I went away and left a job that I loved. And it took quite a long time for me to kind of, um, you know, get my head around, you know, not being a part of it anymore. In those first few months and years, you know, how did you manage to live without it? Because, of course, being in a, in a soap, a, a big drama serial like Coronation Street, you, people think of you as Brian. 
you're always Brian to everybody. So it's difficult, isn't it, to sort of um, sort of quickly get other parts and things like that. You know, did did it have? You know, what kind of effect did it have on you, just practically? Well, <laughs> I went to Hollywood. I was mixing <laughs> with Rod Stewart. Uh, um, Sylvester Stallone. I was eating at Spargo, this restaurant where you've got Robert De Niro there, then you've got, you know, uh, Joe Pesci there and stuff. I was in La La Land, man. So it was like, I didn't even think about it. You know, the people in, in Hollywood knew me because I married someone famous. So everywhere I went, you know, it was, you know, I'd always get into places because I was married to this person. Um, so I just carried on in La La Land, to be honest. <laughs> and, you know, um, you know, didn't, didn't really think about it after that. Um, you know, I made a decision. It, it wasn't until, it wasn't until my marriage went a bit strange that I thought, oh my God, have I gone and done all that and given all that up for this, for nothing? Oh, gee. So then it started to kind of, you know, hit home um, what I'd done. And, but but, but I, re I remember that I always told myself, you have to keep your dignity, always. Um, and so that's kind of, I kept my dignity. And, you know, I was away from it, so I didn't hear about it. I didn't, you know, see it. It wasn't until I came back to, to England now, however many years later, a couple of years later, where it's in your face all the time um, and people are talking about me and people are stopping me in the street and talking to me about it. And it, as I said earlier on, you know, it's lovely now talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the real Coronation Street, which is really nice and I'm really proud of that. Um, but then you, everywhere you'd go, everyone would be talking about the street. So suddenly that's when it all started to come back to me. And think, oh my God, you know, it's um, I'm not doing what I loved, and it was definitely the job. It wasn't the fame, it wasn't the money, it wasn't the recognition. It was the job itself, acting with those people, you know, um, you know, every day that that, that 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 I missed. But it was to say, it didn't hit home until I came back to um, to England. And of course, because you've been away for a few years as well, and then come back to England, because we wouldn't have been necessarily kept up to date with exactly what you were going up getting up to in America I wouldn't have thought at that time but when you came back I presume then it would be difficult as well to sort of find new roles and things because do you know what I mean because time had moved on but also people had it in their memory that you were you were Brian you know what I mean? well, well also then then it was the the that horrible word typecasting was around it it doesn't exist today you know it doesn't exist now because they're all allowed to do other things and they all do other things. You know, you see them, you know, on these talk shows or stuff. So they're allowed to do other things. And there's so many actors now left soaps and they've gone on to other bigger and better things. But at that particular time, it was typecasting. And when I came back, there was a recession as well when, when I came back. So, um, uh, and I always remember somebody telling me, Chris, when, when actors leave the country, and they go to another country, they go to America. He says, and, you know, uh, they don't like it. <laughs> and then you come back. There's a lot of people don't like it. And, you know, and, you know, I can believe that. So, so when it came back, it's, um, 
you know, I, I got straight back on, on the, uh, you know, celebrity kind of markets st status. And I started playing golf again, celebrity golf. I started doing appearances. I put a band together. Uh, again, I used to have a band and I'd go and do cabaret and stuff. Um, and, and, uh, so I started doing that kind of stuff, getting back into the, 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 the celebrity invitations and all that stuff. So I did, I picked back up again, being a celebrity and on the back of Coronation Street. And I kind of rode that, um, for, for quite a long time and then got involved with, uh, Peter Stringfellow. Um, obviously years and years later, you've ended up back in soap again. So recently you were, you were in Hollyoaks. How did, how did that come about? Yeah, um, it was uh, Adam Rickett. The Hollyoaks said uh, to him, um, you know, how would you like to leave uh, the show? And uh, he said, oh, I'd like to bring in my mum and dad. And I'd like, I want Chris Quinton to pay my dad. <laughs> because he was, he was part of a big suicide storyline, wasn't he? Basically? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, they, they called me up and asked me if I'd like to do it and stuff. And... Uh, um, it was only a cameo, but, uh, you know, they, they, they said they, they may try and work out if they can bring the character back. So, uh, yeah, and that was good. That was, you know, I did like two months on that and that was great. Would you be able to that? Would you for being... I'd love that. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. You know, cause it, it's, there's something special about, um, being in a regular soap opera. Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course. And, you know, and being able to, you know, mess around playing these silly parts every day, it's, 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 it's a, a kind of childish kind of um, behaviour. It's great fun to, to play the good characters, the bad characters, to play the sad, to play that. It's just good fun doing it, you know, and, and, and that, that's what I missed over the years, doing that on a regular basis. So if I had a chance to, you know, to, to be in, 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 somewhere like Hollyoaks or another soap, then, you know, I would jump at it. Well, it's funny you should say that. And you mentioned earlier on about uh, tarot card readings and we were talking about Coronation Street being in the stars. Yeah. But of course, uh, if you think about Hollyoaks, there's a little precedent here because Gillian Tailforth, who was yes. killed off from EastEnders as, uh, as Kathy, she yes. was completely dead, totally dead. Then she went and had a regular role for a while in Hollyoaks. And now... By whatever means, she's now back in EastEnders. She's uh, come back to life. Then the, there might be hope for you yet. You might be able to be brought back to life in Coronation Street. Well, the, the, <laughs> the, the, there is talk that Brian had a twin. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so he comes back as a twin. So <laughs> that, 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 that would be a good, a good ending. But, but you know, I, I have a, a good tarot card reading and... Um, you know, I won't go into detail, but, uh, you know, um, I, I will let you know if, if, if what, what, what it was said in the tarot card, anything like that comes true. I will, you, you'll be the first person I'll be on the phone to. <laughs> <laughs> now, if he came back, if he came back, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Because, of course, Nick is, um, uh, I think there's been about three different Nicks. So, he's, you know, the, 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 your son in it has been three different people over the years and then of course um gail has had i mean i think actually going looking back at it um well there was martin wasn't there 
But um, she's had. Well, they call they call her the Black Widow, and she's had about five or six, I think now. Yeah, yeah, she's had some awful blokes over the years. I mean, you, yeah, <laughs> you were tame. You were very tame. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, then looking back at um, your time in Coronation Street, obviously it was a you know big thing for you. Um, changed completely changed your life. We can say that. Um, but was it? Um, you know, overall, was it a good or a bad thing when you look back at your life as a whole? Because, of course, it had a big effect on you, positively and negatively. You know, what? how does it sit when you look back? Well, I'm so proud that I had those 10 years of, um, of being in Coronation Street. So, for me, it was the best thing that, that um, uh, could have happened to me. And I loved every minute of it um and as i said when i left i, I promised myself that i would have di a dignity and because of the sort of person i am i um i, I i'm not fame hungry i don't go in places and say okay look at me and stuff like that so that kind of thing didn't really interest me anymore you know i wasn't bothered about being famous i'd, I'd had my time you know, and I was suddenly, I was in my 30s now. And um, I'm just proud that I had that time. And as I've told you, I'm proud and happy that it was at the beginning when it was the real Coronation Street. So, so for me, you know, wherever I am now um, is because of that. Um, you know, and, you know, it, it's taught me to, to, to live well. It taught me to... To, to be happy and enjoy myself. And it taught me to, you know, to, to have fun. And, I, you know, I've never stopped that, no matter, you know, if, if after the show, um, my 10 years, I had any dry periods and stuff, you know, it, I, I promised myself that, you know, it wouldn't affect how I lived and my mentality and stuff. So, you know, and I've always, you know, been able to go on holiday. I've always just, been able to go to nice restaurants and I've always been able to have a nice glass of wine. None, none of that's changed, you know. Um, it doesn't bother me that people don't recognise me at all. In fact, you know, I prefer not to be noticed um, and, and to go in places and stuff like that. And, well, they won't, uh, you know, so, yeah, they won't um, you now with that beard, will they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're I'm, right, yeah. I'm sat, you know, here, I'm sat here talking to Chris Quinton, he's got a beard. None of you can recognise him now. But do people, people who do recognise you, I presume you're still Brian to them, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. You definitely, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you still... You, you, I, I'm Brian and, and, you know, still, you know, do, does Gail know you're alive? <laughs> have, you get, the, have you still got those overalls? <laughs> they're in the drawer and they come out every now and again for a party. <laughs> <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. Chris Quinton, who played Brian Tilsley uh, for 11 years, I think it was. You were in Coronation Street. Uh, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, you've brought back a lot of memories. Fantastic. And stay tuned to Distinct Nostalgia for more great Corrie interviews in coming weeks as that big 60th anniversary gets ever closer. And don't forget there are plenty of other great Corrie stories already on Distinct Nostalgia. Just scroll through our archives for interviews including Thelma Barlow, Steve Arnold, Nick Cochran and many more. 
Coming up next, it's our East is East at 21 series. It starts this weekend as Ashley sits down with Linda Bassett, who played mum Ella Khan in the hilarious BAFTA-winning 1999 Brit flick. Of course, we had Om, who was a star. He was a complete star in India. When we filmed the scenes in Southall, he couldn't walk down the street without, with people rushing out of their shops giving him presents. It was like take, walking in with Robert De Niro. Also in the series, we talked to Leslie Nickel, who played Auntie Annie, and Chris Bisson, who was Celine. East is East at 21 starts this weekend, only on Distinct Nostalgia. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.